Let's pray before we begin here together. Heavenly Father, we ask that uh, your word would cut through today into our lives. We're expectant of what you might do in our hearts and minds by your life-giving word, by your convicting word, by your eternal word. We just ask that in the preaching of the word, we would meet with Jesus, and by your spirit, we'd all receive the words of life. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So... Here we go. This is the last sermon in Genesis. Do you remember what we called the Genesis series? Anybody? Gospel Roots. Yeah, Gospel Roots. Jesus in Genesis. And we're talking today, this is, I think, I've preached 60 sermons in Genesis. And Father Michael has preached four, maybe, three or four so that puts us in the mid-60s. And here we are, the final one, the final passage. In 1875, hymn writer Philip Bliss wrote these words, Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood, hallelujah, what a savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. You know, Paul tells us in the book of Romans, echoing all of Scripture, that we are, like Philip Bliss said in this song, guilty before God. Without God's grace and mercy, we stand condemned before God because of our transgressions against His will and His law. We have fallen short of the glory of God, is what Paul would say. The scriptures bear witness that in our sin we have incurred death as punishment and worse, separation from God because of our sin. And the current of sin, it runs so deep in our hearts that we cannot right the wrongs. We can't pay for, atone for our transgressions. We are sinful, utterly sinful. And so we need God to do something for us. And so Jesus comes to earth, lives a perfect life that we could not live because the current of divinity runs through him, leads him to a perfect life with no guilt or vile, totally holy. And then Jesus, who is the spotless Lamb of God, gives his life for us on the cross to atone, to make full atonement for our sins so that we could be forgiven of our trespasses and be restored into a right relationship with the Maker and have eternal life with him forever. Hallelujah. What a Savior. But there is an epidemic in the church. I am convinced that there is a disease working its way through the hearts of believers. I have experienced it in pastoral ministry, people sharing with me and opening their hearts to me that there is a disease called, I would call it, pardon amnesia. You see, Philip Bliss, he asked rhetorically, full atonement, can it be? What was the answer to his question? Yes, absolutely. 
But pardon amnesias causes us to ask that question over and over and over again. Full atonement can it be? And we're unsure about the answer because we forget the full atonement, the pardon that Jesus' victory on the cross absolutely won for us. Pardon amnesia causes us to wonder things like this. Listen closely. Has God's grace run out on me? Can God really forgive me this time? Have I already used too much of the blood? You know, I'm not as far along in the holiness journey as I think I should be, so maybe Jesus is going to give up on me. Maybe forgiveness has run out on me, and it's over. If these thoughts are sometimes your thoughts or have been your thoughts, or you know people that have these thoughts, they're struggling with pardon amnesia. They've been infected. In Genesis 50, we meet some brothers who knew the forgiveness of a savior, of a friend, of a brother, but they doubted the longevity of the pardon that Joseph had given them. And I pray that as we get into God's word this morning, that by the spirit of the living God, we would be healed of pardon amnesia. That we would fully embrace this morning and forever the reality of full atonement. Because when we really get the depths of Jesus' love for us, and the power of his cross, then we finally make progress in our spiritual journey. Only when we really believe Jesus loved us enough to forgive every sin do we stand any chance to walk in holiness. And so my prayer is that we find freedom in Jesus' forgiveness this morning. In verse 15 it says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, here it is. Pardon amnesia right here. It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Guys, the patriarch just died. I mean, they just finished cleaning up the meal after the funeral. And Joseph's brothers begin to panic right away. Why? Well, Joseph's brothers had transgressed and sinned against him in the past. The word transgression, it is coming against, rebelling against someone. In Leviticus 16, it's used, the word transgression is used about our transgression against law, uh, God's law. We're made to be in relationship with God, to be in fellowship with God by his will and law, but we reject that. We transgress against it. We rebel against it. And so we break a relationship with God. Transgression. So Joseph's brothers had sinned against him by rebelling against their relationship together as brothers. And in particular, the relationship God made them to have. God called these brothers to be a light of his love and blessing to all nations. But when Joseph's brothers heard 
from Joseph's mouth about these prophetic dreams that he would be the leader, that he would lead the brothers, they said, no thanks. And they beat him up, you know this, they drug him into a pit and then they sold him into slavery. They made their father believe he was dead. They transgressed. And they fear because they say, the evil done to Joseph, maybe he'll hate us and he'll finally get his revenge. This word evil, it's used throughout Genesis just to describe the wickedness of mankind. In Genesis 8.21, it's the same word that all people have this evil in their heart, this inclination towards transgression. The same word describes the sin of Sodom the men of Sodom, great evil. It's the same word that describes the evil in the world before the flood. The evil that brings judgment, that's what we're talking about. And it's the very same word, listen, this is important, the very same word when Jacob is given Joseph's robe of many colors and it's covered in blood, he says, a fierce animal devoured him. And that word fierce is the same word, an evil animal devoured him. But now the brothers, they're acknowledging an animal did not devour our brother. We did. We were the evil ones. And so surely Joseph will hate us. And that hate, it's not just, uh, I hate peas. I will not eat peas. I'm not going to do it. I don't care how many times Kimmy serves peas, I'm not gonna eat them, I hate them. But this is a different kind of hate. This is the hate that Esau had when Jacob stole the birthright. Do you remember what Esau wanted to do? What? Kill Jacob. This is the kind of hate that they're fearing. He will hate us and maybe he'll murder us. That's the kind of hate we're talking about. So they're afraid. So the brothers, they're once again acknowledging what they called guilt back in Genesis 42, 21. And they fear that Joseph has been harboring this vindictive, murderous hatred for them. But remember, they had experienced Joseph's love. They had experienced his bringing them into his life again, even his forgiveness of their guilt. It happened in Genesis 45. You remember Judah says, I'll give my life in exchange for Benjamin. And then Joseph breaks down and he says, listen, I'm Joseph. And they're all restored together. And Joseph, he says, listen, don't be distressed. Don't freak out. Don't panic. God has been at work in all of this. And if God is using all of this for his glory, I'm not upset. I'm not going to hold a grudge. In fact, come and be with me. Bring dad. Everybody come and I will provide safety for you. Do you remember all of this, Joseph? And then he grabbed them all in a hug and he fell on their necks and he wept and kissed them. They had experienced this restoration. Though they had destroyed the relationship, it had been restored. But all this time they thought Joseph, listen to this, they thought his forgiveness was contingent. Joseph is forgiving us as long as Jacob is alive. It's contingent on Jacob. 
And so with Jacob gone, with dad gone, he doesn't need to bless dad anymore so he can just come after us. You get that? So it seems like they make up this story. It's divided when you look at scholars. They think, some of them think they made up the story about Jacob saying, forgive your brothers. And then they send messengers. We can't go before him, he'll kill us. They send messengers before him. When they find out that Joseph's weeping, they come before him and they bow down and they say, we're God's servants, you can't kill us. What has happened here? They're still overcome with their guilt from past sins that they cannot believe in the reality of forgiveness. When they reflect on the guilt of their past, now, don't, nobody tell me that you've never experienced this. When they reflect on the guilt of their past, they have trouble believing they're really forgiven. Though they had been brought to Joseph's house, though they had feasted at his table, though he had cared for them for now 17 years, they still wonder, could he really have forgiven us? And with this guilt ravaging their minds, they are tormented. John Calvin said they are so agitated by guilt that they became their own tormentors. Listen, when we believe that we are not truly forgiven, we become our own tormentors. We keep ourselves up at night. We heap shame on ourselves. We live in condemnation and guilt, even though the gospel says no condemnation. We pile it on ourselves. When we embrace the lie that Christ's pardon is not full and sufficient for all our sins, we reject the assurance of the gospel and we choose to live unassured lives wondering if we really belong to God. We are prone to think that we have a contingent forgiveness. As if Jesus said, you're forgiven as long as you prove now that you deserved it. Or, I will forgive you as long as you make these steps. Or, I will forgive you as long as you finally get over that struggle. Or, I will forgive you if, if, if that's not the gospel. The gospel says, you believe you're forgiven. We might not look to Jacob for assurance, but we do tend to look at those contingencies that we put up and say, okay, as long as this is going in my life, I really know that God loves me. Things like, as long as I'm uh, slaying this sin, yeah, then I know I belong. Or as long as I'm making strides in my uh, spiritual disciplines, then yeah, I can really believe I'm forgiven. But we begin to struggle and then all of a sudden we doubt our forgiveness. Because here's the end, we can never merit our forgiveness. We can never prove that we deserved it, ever, never. We cannot afford the precious blood that was spilled for us. So every time we try to say, I know I belong because of this in my life, we are tormented because we can't afford the price that was paid, the power of the wonder-working cross. This is part of amnesia, it's what it looks like. And when Joseph, the savior of the famine, he hears how his brothers are fearing. He says, do not fear. He knows they're afraid. He weeps. Jesus is a gentle and lowly savior. 
tender hearted. He is more sympathetic to your weaknesses than you can ever imagine. And so when you are struggling with it, I I think Jesus is like Joseph. He is broken up about it. Verse 17, they're in the middle. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and they fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am, am I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. How about this? Thus he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. That's a key verses for Joseph's life. God meant it for good. The brothers bow before him. Maybe they're thinking, okay, if he's, if he's really going to pay us back, let's offer our lives as in servitude, then maybe he won't kill us. But Joseph says, you don't need to fear. None of that. Because God has been working. It's true, what you did was evil, but God used it for good. He took your crime against me. He turned it upside down. By your devouring of me, somehow the world was saved. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And you know, Joseph, he could have taken revenge. He could have made them pay, but he looked at the heart of God and said, no. You know, if Joseph sought revenge, he would have been rejecting God's divine, sovereign plan. But he saw that God has been working, and so he comforted them and spoke kindly to them, even giving the assurance of provision. You don't need to just be afraid right now. You don't ever need to be afraid because I will provide for you. And you don't need to be afraid of the next generation because I will make sure that we provide for them. And here's a key truth of Scripture, church. God does not participate in evil. God, the Holy Trinity, does not yoke himself to evil or have empower evil to flourish. But God delights to take our evil decisions and flip them upside down for his glory. That's a principle throughout all of Scripture. God has a plan. And so if you're experiencing evil in your own life, there is somewhere to rest. God uses it for his glory and for his good. Then we come to the closing verses of Genesis and the death of Joseph. This is it, guys, the last verses of Genesis. And in the first part of our passage this morning, the brothers had to rely on Joseph. They had to rely on his pardon. They had to rely on his forgiveness. In the second part, Joseph relies on his brothers. He relies on the family to prove full pardon. We're all good. In fact, we're so good, I need you to do something for me. Look at what it says. I'll read to the end of the chapter. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. That's like the, the prime age for a, well, a blessed life, 110. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, the children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, who counted, 
were counted as Joseph's own, he probably adopted those children like Jacob had done for his children. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you. That word visit's important. Will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, they had to repeat it to him. Say it back to me. Have you ever done that with children maybe? Listen to what I say, now tell me what you heard, so I make sure you heard it. That's what Joseph does. Listen to what I say about God's visit. Now I wanna be clear, did you hear what I said? Yeah, we heard you, no, 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 say it back. He made them swear saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Verses 22 and 23 stress the blessing that Joseph had in his life by seeing children and living so long and grandchildren. And when we get to verse 24, we find Joseph on his deathbed. So some years maybe pass by here. And it says his brothers are gathered around him. More than likely, that's the brothers who are still alive and their children. So he gathers relatives around him, Israelite relatives around him. And he says, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. That's the first time in the Bible those three names go together like that. To Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And that becomes a refrain. It's a quick way of saying God is faithful to his promises. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even Jesus will say those words together. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So just as his father had done at his death, so Joseph reminds the people of Israel about God's promise. Egypt is but a sojourning, a journey. Canaan is home. God will come. He'll lift you. You asked me to forgive you too. The word forgiveness in the Hebrew here, it means to lift a burden, to pull it up off and carry it away. That's the idea. And so when they asked him to forgive them, he's saying, they're asking, please lift up this burden that we can't bear. And now he says, listen, I did that. I forgave you. But God is going to do something better. He's going to lift you up out of this land. And he's going to bring you to the promised land. Hebrews eleven twenty two says, By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites. He told them an exodus is coming. A rescue is coming. So this is a statement of faith. This is Joseph's statement of faith. And you know how sure he is that God will visit them? How sure is he? What does he tell them? In fact, I'm so sure God will visit you when he does. What does he say? It's there in the passage. When he visits you, I want you to do something. (coughs) Carry my bones out of here. Don't leave me in Egypt. Take me home. Hebrews eleven twenty two. 22, it ends like this. And he gave directions concerning his bones. That was a statement of faith. He was so sure that God would visit the people that he said, take my bones with you. Then Joseph, who was the rising star of Israel, he died. He was embalmed. He was placed in a coffin, buried in Egypt. Egypt is the very last word of Genesis. Any idea why Egypt would be the very last word of Genesis? The next book of the Bible. 
because it's foreshadowing. Something's going to happen in Egypt. You know, if Joseph had not really forgiven his brothers, if he still had a grudge and denied the truth of God's involvement in their lives, then surely he would not have entrusted himself to them with these commands, with these requests. But he did. He asked them, believe in the promise of God, and in believing, when you see it happen, carry my bones. Exodus 13, 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones with you from here. And so Joseph makes the trip to the promised land. Extra biblical Hebrew writing tells us that in the wilderness, Joseph's coffin was carried right next to the Ark of the Covenant. And the word coffin is the exact same Hebrew word for ark. So you've got two arks going around the land. And I won't say any more about that because I'll go off on a tangent. As we wrap up Genesis here, remember, just give me a couple more minutes here. In the beginning of Genesis, everything was so beautiful and perfect and man, it's what we miss in our brokenness. And in this world filled with evil, we miss the beauty of God's perfect world. But Genesis was hit with transgression and separation. Adam and Eve were called to trust God, to believe in God, to know that God has the best for them and to follow God, to to just be with Him and trust Him. But they didn't. They rebelled. They took what was forbidden them. They ate in idolatry. And so sin entered the world and through sin death spread to all the world and because of sin mankind was separated from God. That's how Genesis begins, Genesis 3. But now we come to the very end of Genesis and we get this beautiful picture of forgiveness and reconciliation in the promises of God. And that's how Genesis comes to a conclusion. You know, the plague of sin and separation because of sin to death and separation from God is a part of all of our stories. We're guilty of turning from God, of living in idolatry, of embracing not God as God in our lives. And so we're separated from the living source of life and peace and joy. We're destined to death because the intent of our heart without the recreation work of God We're evil, and we cannot atone for our sins. In fact, the situation is so dire that Paul says in Ephesians 2, you're dead in your trespasses. Utterly dead, totally helpless. And by the Spirit of God working in our lives, somehow He opens our dead eyes to see we need a Savior. We need a rescuer. We need someone better than Joseph that can bring us salvation. The brothers looked to Joseph to find the freedom they needed. And Joseph was a great man. He walked with God and through God, or through Joseph, God worked. But we all know, brothers and sisters, Joseph was a type of a greater redeemer to come of a greater redeemer to come. His bones in a coffin 
carried around and into the promised land were pointing to a new redeemer, the living God, who would put his feet down in the promised land to bring a greater redemption and rescue. A savior who would bring bondage, not from salvation from bondage, from sin and death. When the Hebrew scholars translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek, they chose a particular Greek word to translate visit, which we read in Genesis 50, 24. And that same word is used in Luke 1 when Zechariah is told of the coming birth of Jesus Christ, of the Messiah. Here's what he says when he's singing. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. When Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, the hope of forgiveness was realized and the promise of restoration was fulfilled. Jesus walked in this world in step with God without sin. Then he died on a cross cast out, removed, crucified by his own brothers. Though the true star of Israel, Jesus' own, put him to death, they devoured him with evil. But God uses greatest tragedy of the world for his good. The blood of Jesus was the only blood that could finally bring forever forgiveness. People tried to make atonement in the past. They tried to make things right with God. They even offered bloody sacrifices, but they were corrupted priests who had evil in their heart. Jesus is the uncorrupted one, the uncreated one, the only one who could shed blood that would bring forever pardon and full atonement, and he did it on the cross. His cross is powerful enough for every sin in your life. Full stop. Nothing else to add to that. And you know, when Jesus died, a man, we've talked about this, named Joseph, he took Jesus' body off the cross and put Jesus' bones in Joseph's tomb. But Jesus is not a dead redeemer, but the living God. No one can carry his bones around. Because in his body, he bore our sins on the cross, but he bore them to destroy them And so the grave had to give up. It had to give up the greater Joseph. And Jesus was resurrected. When we come to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of Joseph's faith and of your faith and my faith, we put our trust in him. He lifts our burdens and he carries them away forever. And by faith in Jesus, God has delivered us from a dominion of darkness. He's transferred us into the kingdom of his son where we find redemption and forgiveness. You're pardoned. Past sins paid for, present sins wrestled into the grave, future sins atoned. But, now here's the end. We're coming to the close. But at different times in our lives, I think we each struggle to believe We're truly and utterly and completely forgiven. Just like Joseph's brothers here in Genesis 50. Yeah, we believe in forgiveness when we're redeemed and we we first come to Christ, but then as we walk out our journey in faith, we take steps back. We're like prisoners set free who say, I'll go back to prison. And 
2013, a Nigerian newspaper ran this story. Listen to this. An inmate caused a mild farce at the Orai High Court after a judge acquitted him of all charges against him. But the man refused and demanded to go back to prison. Instead of the usual jubilation that follows any ruling of discharged and acquitted, the inmate in question headed straight back to the prison, only to be intercepted by a prison guard who reminded him he was free to go home. To the chagrin of the eyewitnesses, he said he wasn't going anywhere, demanding to be allowed re-entry into the prison. What seemed like a mild drama turned absurd when the calm of the court premises was shattered by the freed prisoner's shouts and pleas to be allowed to go back to prison as he thrashed about and struggled with several prison officials. According to eyewitnesses, it took the effort of six prison officials, court workers, and policemen to get the freed inmate off the premises. The cross says to you, when you look to Jesus in faith, free. But many of us wrestle against the acquittal. Why? Because we look at ourselves. We look at the contingencies we put up. We look at our efforts and holiness and our work. We see our sins and our struggles. We can be real with ourselves. We have some brokenness and some darkness. And so we determine, I need to go back to prison. I'm guilty and vile and helpless. No one can save me. I need to go back to prison. But when these thoughts, listen very closely, when these thoughts run through our minds, thoughts like, can the blood really forgive that sin or this sin? Am I, I'm not holy enough for Jesus to love. He's going to give up on me and forgiveness is going to run out. When we do that, listen, Christian, you're telling your Savior Jesus, you're saying, you don't get to decide if I'm forgiven. You don't get to decide if I'm lovable. You don't get to decide. I do. And we make ourselves God. There's no freedom with eyes fixed on self. Dane Ortland, he wrote in his book, Deeper, quote, if you are having thoughts like these, I want you to know that you're looking at the wrong life. Your life doesn't disprove Christ's love. His life proves it. So how do we slay the disease? Pen, pardon, amnesia. How do we find healing this moment? And my prayer today is that healing would wash over our souls. And that finally we'd embrace Jesus' love for us and the power of his cross and his forgiveness. So how do you do it? This is what the New Testament would tell you. It's what the church fathers would tell you. It's what church history would tell you. It's what... Uh, look to the cross. Reflect on the cross. Put the cross on your mind. Sing about the cross. Preach about the cross. Read about the cross. Meditate on the cross. Go to sleep with the cross on your mind. Wear the cross. Whatever you can do to remind yourself of the power of the cross, that is how pardon amnesia is healed and destroyed in your life. We put our eyes on what the world meant for evil, the blood of the cross, and we see what God used for good.
So just like Joseph had work for his brothers to do, so our Redeemer pardons us for a purpose. You're not just a prisoner set free. You're a prisoner set free, raised up to be a co-heir in the kingdom of God. And Joseph's brothers were still, they were sent from Joseph with the promise of God and commissioned to carry his bones. And Jesus saves us and commissions us with the promise of his forgiveness and the tomb without bones. So to walk out this mission, to live out your calling in God, to be a kingdom presence in your workplace, in this world, in this neighborhood, to take steps towards Jesus in your relationship, we need to again embrace the full work, the final work of Jesus and his cross. The roots of the gospel right here at the very end of Genesis 50.